Here's the tease. Consider this a red pill for those trapped in the matrix of lifeless religion. Congratulations. Through the powerful providence of a benevolent benefactor, you've stumbled onto this visual and auditory digital booyah base hosted by yours truly, hipster grandfather David A. Holland. Here we explore the too good to be true, poorly understood, badly neglected realities of what Jesus actually accomplished and launched 2,000 years ago. A new covenant, a better covenant based on better promises. Consider this a red pill for those trapped in the matrix of lifeless religion. So, check your religion at the door, grab a beverage, grab a Bible, strap in, gird your loins. This is the new and better podcast. Episode 001, the very first. Not today, it's just me. But in future installments, you'll get to be a fly on the wall. Well, not so much a fly as a beautiful butterfly with ears, as I have scintillating conversations with some of the most interesting, wise, and insightful people you've probably never heard of. And some you have. But since this is the maiden voyage of this theological party barge, I'm going to start by giving you a high-altitude overview of what we're all about here, which, if I do my job correctly, will persuade you, nay, compel you to subscribe, follow, like, or whatever it is you do for things that entertain you, illuminate you, and most of all, help you at the same time. I'll begin with a story on page two. Hi, David Holland here, excited to introduce you to my brand new 55-day devotional, Praying Grace for Women. I've poured the insights from 35 years of loving and praying for an amazing wife and three extraordinary daughters into it. I believe with all my heart that it contains truths and keys that are vital for thriving in these times in which everything that can be shaken is being shaken. I wrote it because right now, far too many Christian women, beloved daughters of God, are spread too thin, exhausted, stressed out, burned out, or just living with chronic anxiety. And for many, prayer has become a fruitless, frustrating, joyless exercise. Yet another box to check, another duty to perform. Well, here's extraordinary news for the weary feminine soul there is another way to pray, a more effective way that produces a refreshing, life-giving connection with God's love, grace, and power. Get ready to discover grace for rest, grace for intimacy with God, grace for peace, and grace for breakthrough, as well as the keys to praying from strength rather than struggling for strength. I'm hoping you'll click and order a copy or two right now for yourself, or for a daughter of God you love and want to bless. Okay, here's that story I promised you. It's uh, possibly apocryphal. Let's call it a parable, but it certainly vividly illustrates an important point. One that I want you to understand with great depth and clarity today. About a hundred years ago, there was an immigrant 
a man in Eastern Europe who planned to start a new life for himself and his family in the new world in the United States. So he scraped up enough money for a passage to the United States and preserving a little bit of additional capital to be able to start a new life there with the hopes of someday, soon, bringing his family across to join him. In order to preserve as much money as possible, he bought a wheel of inexpensive cheese and some crackers to serve as his meals on the two-week transatlantic voyage. And he did. He carefully apportioned and stewarded his little wheel of cheese and crackers and to make sure he didn't run out of food before the end of his journey. Every once in a while, though, as the voyage progressed, he would walk the deck and peer longingly through the window of the mess hall and see all of these other fellow steerage passengers there enjoying sumptuous meals and enjoying each other's company and seemingly just having a really great time with a lot of abundant, hearty peasant food. But he knew he had a mission. He knew that sacrifice was going to be required for him to meet his objectives, so he happily subsisted on his little tiny daily apportionment of cheese and crackers. On one of the final days of the voyage, he was up on deck when one of the stewards approached him and said, Sir, I haven't seen much of you on this voyage, and uh, you seem to keep to yourself and keep to your room, and I was just wondering why you never joined us in the mess hall for any of our meals, breakfast, lunch, or dinner. And the man said, oh, well, I didn't have enough money to purchase food for this journey. I just wanted to save as much money as I possibly could uh, for use in my destination. Well, the steward looked at him in disbelief and shock for a moment. And as the truth dawned on him, he said, sir, did you not know meals were a part of your ticket? You purchased three meals a day when you paid for your ticket. I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry that you didn't understand that. Well, the man, he was sorry too. Here's the thing. So many of us in this Christian life are exactly like that man. If you're a Christian and you're still living under portions of the law or legalism, I hate to tell you this, but you are that guy. If you don't understand the depth and breadth of what God sent Jesus to do and what he accomplished in his death, resurrection, and ascension to the throne of planet Earth, you're that guy. Please, don't be that guy. Well, how can you keep from being that guy? Well, the key is understanding the big story your Bible is telling. And that's just ahead here on the New and Better Podcast. Page three. Hey, I want to remind you about my brand new devotional titled Praying Grace for Women. I'm going to let you guess who it's for. Now, if you're not a woman, get a copy for the woman you care most about. And if you're a guy, also go get a, my original devotional, Praying Grace. Both are available right now 
at your favorite online bookseller. And if it's not there, castigate them vigorously and exhort them to stock it. Let's talk for a minute about the power of story. In one sense, your Bible is a collection of stories. There's a reason for that. It's because our brains are wired by our Creator to absorb and retain truth and information through stories. That's why I just told you a story about our immigrant cheese and crackers man. 5,000 years ago, before the advent of writing, stories often told around a fire at night were the primary way of transmitting history, culture, and values. Of course, today, some of our most impactful storytelling is done through movies. And at the highest level of such storytelling, a successful movie and its sequels can artfully form an even bigger story, a long, cohesive narrative, where the separate pieces are beautifully sewn together to create a powerful, bigger whole. Take the film The Matrix and its numerous sequels, for example. Taken together, the series of Matrix movies, well, they, um, well, there's sort of a, well, if you, if you look really closely, you can kind of see a sort of a, okay, I chose a really bad example. The first film in the Matrix series was great, but everything that followed was a hot mess. So let's talk about the Star Wars prequels instead. Wait, no, that's, that's not helping me either. Forget movies for a moment. The best example is your Bible. One of the miracles of Scripture is that 66 individual books, all inspired by the Holy Spirit, but authored in different eras and in different places, carry narrative threads that, when perceived and followed, reveal God's immense heart of love for people and his brilliant redemptive strategy. The objective of that strategy was and is to restore you and me to intimate, life-giving, relational connection with him. Now, a key to understanding one of those narrative threads is right there on the table of contents page of your Bible. You'll find those 66 books divided into two sections, right? the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, the word testament suggests a legal document, like a will or a contractual arrangement. And in the ancient world of the Bible, the most solemn and binding of all such arrangements was a covenant. The very structure of your Bible reveals that God's redemptive activity throughout history had two big phases, like a two-act drama. And what we're about to see is that the Old Covenant was an imperfect but necessary prelude to a new and improved covenant. So, here's the question you might be asking. What does the division of my Bible into Old and New Testaments reveal about God, and what does it mean to me? What's the big story being told here? Well, to understand that question, you need trigger warning. A little bit of a history lesson. Now stay with me here. Don't flee in terror because I use the H word. This is headed somewhere really tasty. Over the last couple of hundred years, lots of archaeological digs in places like Iraq and Syria have turned up 3,000-year-old clay tablets and stone monuments that contain 
treaties between kings and nations. Now, those treaties tend to break down into two big categories. In other words, there were two types of covenantal relationships in the ancient Near East. The first kind is called a suzerain-vassal treaty. So let's define terms for a minute. Don't let that scare you. The word suzerain means a strong overlord that dominates a weaker one, but yet lets the weaker one maintain some level of control over his country. And a vassal is a person or a nation that submits to an overlord or suzerain. So a suzerain-vassal arrangement is where a king of vastly superior might approaches a much weaker neighboring king and offers him protection in exchange for loyalty, obedience, and some annual tribute. The strong king says to the weak king, look, I could squash you like a bug, but I'd much prefer just to turn your little nation into a vassal. So you promise to pay me tribute every year and stay loyal, and that means not making an alliance with any of my enemies, and in return, I'll promise to protect you. Of course, if you violate this agreement, if you fail to pay tribute, or if you secretly start cozying up to some other rival king, well, it's a nice country you have there. It would be a shame if anything happened to it. We have a pretty vivid example of that dynamic right now going on with Russia. Back in the days of the former Soviet Union, that nation had what were known as client states. In Europe, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Romania, East Germany, and Hungary were all vassal states to the Soviet Union. Now lately, Russia has attempted to make Ukraine a vassal state, but they've been saying to Putin, hard pass, bro. Something similar was very common in the ancient Near East. All the great empires had vassal states and the arrangements were usually spelled out on clay tablets. You can hardly stick a shovel in the ground in Iraq or Syria without turning up one of these clay tablet treaties. And those treaties almost always followed a specific pattern or structure. It identified the parties, strong king, weak king. It laid out the stipulations. That's what the weak king was required to do and provide. And it outlined the punishments the vassal would suffer for violating the treaty, as well as the benefits they would receive for honoring it usually, protection from other enemies. That's a suzerain-vassal covenant. So, what about that other kind of covenant treaty? It's called a parity treaty. They had a lot of those back in Bible times as well. It came into play where two essentially equal parties pledged mutual loyalty to each other. It's a covenant between two peers. It might be struck between two kings of two equally powerful nations, or the heads of two tribes, or the heads of two families. In this kind of covenant, the parties mutually pledge loyalty and faithfulness to each other. Both say, what I have is yours. My resources are available to you. If you're attacked, I'll consider it an attack on me and come to your defense. We're now family. An animal sacrifice was often performed to seal the oaths and promises around that arrangement. Sometimes rings were exchanged, or weapons, or, or coats. Each party was, in effect, saying, may this and worse happen to me, that's the sacrificed animals, may that happen to me if I ever violate this sacred pact. 
Now, every time I've ever officiated a wedding, I've talked about this kind of covenant when we came to the exchange of uh, rings. It's there, I remind the couple, that they are entering into a parody covenant in which each party says to the other, everything I have is available to you. The first kind of covenant, that suzerain vassal treaty, makes you a servant. The second kind makes you a son or a daughter. Family. Now, here's how all of this applies to the understanding of the big narrative arc of your Bible. God framed the old covenant on the suzerain vassal model. In fact, the book of Deuteronomy is structured precisely like one of those ancient vassal treaties they're always finding on those clay tablets and stone slabs. Most of the first 27 chapters of Deuteronomy, and I get this, this is cool. The first 27 chapters of Deuteronomy identify the parties and their history and contain the stipulations or requirements being placed on the vassal. In this case, the vassal is the Israelite nation. Then chapter 28 opens with a list of benefits or blessings that will flow to Israel if she is faithful to this covenant. And that is followed by a long list of sanctions or penalties, curses, that will come on the nation if the nation is unfaithful to it. All of that is perfectly in line with the pattern of a classic suzerain vassal treaty. At Mount Sinai, God is offering to be the Israelites' suzerain. A kind suzerain, a just suzerain, but a suzerain all the same. Which is why the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. As Jesus said, no one can serve two masters, and a vassal can only have one suzerain. But that covenant wasn't the end game for God's plan for mankind. He had a sequel planned all along. And at a key point in Israel's history, God used the prophet Jeremiah to talk about a coming new covenant, one coming for his people. That's in Jeremiah 31, 31. It says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Now, in saying that this new covenant will be not like the previous covenant, God is saying that it will be a different kind of covenant. And as the book of Hebrews and many other New Testament scriptures make very clear, that new kind of covenant will be a classic parity treaty between two peers. Those two peers or parties to the new covenant were and are God the Father and God the Son. So if the new covenant is between God the Father and God the Son, where does that leave you and me? Well, we get to participate in their covenant by being in Christ. The miracle of the new birth baptizes us into Jesus. See Romans 6.3 and Galatians 3.27. Once you're born again, you're in him. Now, when you have a moment, read Ephesians chapter 1 and note all of the instances of the phrases in him and in Christ in that chapter. In this miracle of renewal and restoration, you become clothed in Jesus. 
clothed in his righteousness, clothed in his faithfulness. His faithfulness to the covenant becomes your faithfulness. Now, I know that sounds too good to be true, and yet it is. No wonder they call it good news. Now, please understand, God didn't roll out the new covenant only after deciding that the old one wasn't working out as planned. The new covenant was not plan B. The new and the people it created, the church, was God's ultimate plan from the beginning. The old was simply a necessary step in getting there. Now, you might be wondering, why didn't God just skip the 1,500-year step of the first covenant and jump right to the second one? Well, the answer is obvious if you think about it. The ultimate goal was always a parity covenant, one between peers. But there was no peer of God on earth who could represent us. Who was God going to enter into a parity covenant with? So basically, the old covenant, although an inferior kind of covenant, was necessary for God to get his son, our legal representative, into the earth. The old was imperfect, but necessary. A necessary bridge to the new. But once the new arrived, the old could shuffle off to pasture. Off you go. You've done good, Old Covenant. Thank you for your service. That's what the writer of Hebrews is getting at when he wrote, For if that first covenant had been free of fault, no circumstances would have been sought for a second. When he said, A new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. And But whatever is becoming obsolete is growing old and is about to disappear. That's Hebrews 8, verses 7 and 13. So, what does that all mean for you and me? It means we can stop living like we're in a suzerain vassal arrangement with God. In that kind of covenant, the vassal is a fearful servant. It means instead that we're family, sons and daughters of God. It means we can rest and rejoice and be grateful in knowing that the story of God's redemptive, restorative, rescuing work had two big phases. The Old Covenant was an inferior but necessary forerunner of the New Covenant. But the New is a better covenant based on better promises, Hebrews 8, 6 tells us. The Old Covenant created a people through whom the one who could represent humankind would come. It's really liberating when you think about it. You and I can now understand that unlike the Old Testament saints, blessing, protection, and relationship with God is not dependent upon our faithfulness. We're in Christ and He is our faithfulness to everything the covenant requires. As the Matrix series painfully reminds us in movies, the original is almost always better than the sequels. But that's not the case with God's redemptive covenants. In your Bible, the sequel is better than the original in every way. So in closing, think about this scripture. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father. 
for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. That's Romans 8, 15 through 17 in the New Living. Now, it's easy to fall into the trap of striving to earn your standing as a son or daughter of God. To constantly scratch and grope around for a fleeting feeling of acceptance or an elusive sense of worthiness based on your good behavior. Like that cranky brother of the prodigal son, we can work and sacrifice and struggle in self-denial in a prideful quest to attain what's really already fully ours. Or, like the prodigal himself, we can come to God with a mindset of a servant feeling unworthy, unclean, and disqualified. You know, neither son really understood his true position or standing in the gracious heart of their father. In a similar way, we desperately need a revelation that God is indeed our father, that he has set his love upon us, drawn us with cords of love, and irrevocably adopted us as his own. Far too many believers live out their days with what's been called an orphan spirit. This is simply a failure to recognize the truth about what God has done for you and in you. He adopted you as his own child. God chose to be your father. Believe it. Receive it. Pray like it. Now, it's time for Takeaways. Okay, here's what I'm hoping you'll take away from our little time together today. If you're in Christ, then you're not in a suzerain vassal covenant with God. One where you live in constant fear of not living up to the stipulations and therefore incurring the terrible sanctions. No, you're a party to a parity covenant between God the Father and God the Son. This new and better covenant Jesus inaugurated and sealed with his own pristine blood has provided a new and better way to live. Yet few believers are fully enjoying all these better promises. Now, helping you do that is the purpose of this podcast. So, why not join me next time, right here on the New and Better Podcast. See you soon.